Please open your Bible, or yeah, remain standing, and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 24. It's the entire chapter today. What a story. We're continuing. Uh, uh, two weeks ago, we left off with Paul being arrested and threatened in his life, and they whisked him away in, uh, in, in the night down in front of this uh, ruler named Felix, and he's in Caesarea, and that's where we pick up the story. It says uh, in Acts chapter 24. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, Reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man, probably see him pointing at Paul right as he's saying it. We have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews joined also in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple, without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, Put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And as he did this, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. 
At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Please be seated. Lord, we thank you for your word. Help us now, through your Holy Spirit, to receive it, to understand it, to apply it. Lord, everything that you have for us as we interact with your text this morning, we pray for and we pray confidently, knowing that uh, you are present with us through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've got a couple of different worlds that we live in as human beings. We've got the present. But the greatest change that came to you, if you're a Christian, the greatest change that came to you is not as a Christian when you die and cross the river and go into heaven. The greatest change that came to you is when you passed from death to life at that point in your life. And now we are headed toward heaven, and we keep heaven in mind. We keep that resurrection in mind, even as we live. And it's not to say that our concerns on this earth are not important. Uh, We live lives, and what we do is important, of course. Uh, There is a reason for the phrase that that sometimes you hear people say, well, she's so heavenly-minded, she's no earthly good. Uh, The fact of the matter is, uh, that's... A bad phrase because if you are really heavenly minded, you will be the most earthly good of anybody because you've got heaven as a perspective and then you can live on this earth and you can live more free than anybody ever gets to live. Paul is talking today and and in all of this defense, well, he's got to give a defense of his life. He's on trial. He's got tasks. He's got things to do as long as God gives him breath. But what does he come back to in this text? Three times in this defense and and later on, he's talking about the resurrection. This is a sermon about the resurrection. The goal of this sermon is to remind us all that when all of us are dead and gone, that we are not dead and gone. We're just absent from this earth. We are living somewhere eternally. There is a resurrection. Uh, We'll talk about the resurrection of Jesus a little bit, but the emphasis when I say resurrection today in this text, in this sermon, we're talking about the resurrection of ourselves, the resurrection of the dead. Uh, We don't just die, and that's it. I've told Paula, you know, if I I should die before her, I said, I don't even want a funeral service. I want to make everybody come in and listen to one hour of the gospel train on the Blue Grass Junction station and hear all that old hillbilly music and just about two out of every three songs are talking about heaven and crossing the river and being in heaven. There are so many songs about heaven. If you want to get your heart lifted up, listen to those wonderful people, those great musicians, sing some of that old music about heaven. Boy, I worry. I, I look at the pictures on my wall and I see those four grandparents and I cannot wait to be reunited with them. Every time I talk to my youngest brother who lives in Arkansas and runs up there to Branson, Missouri to see dad, 
every time I talk to my mom, and this is a new thing with her, uh, dad's not doing so good. Dad's a Christian. I'll see dad again. Dad not only took us to church, dad told us about Jesus. And, 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 and there is a reunion that's coming there. There is a, that part of the circle that will not be broken. I specifically chose the text this morning. You're like, why in the world is Mark standing up here reading about David and a dying child and all that? That's pretty gloomy, isn't it? Well, it's a sad story if you get it in context. But when they're so afraid to tell David that his child died because they said if he's acting like this while his child is dying, boy, we don't even want to give him the news. But they had to give him the news because he saw them whispering trying to figure out who's going to tell them, who has to tell the king that that baby's died. And they were shocked when he got up and washed his face and and came back to normal. And that famous phrase, uh, some people will lie and they'll say, well, the Old Testament doesn't talk, it just talks about Sheol and it talks about death and the generic. This is one phrase you can look at in the Old Testament. David specifically said, he can't come to me, but I can go to him. I'm going to see that little boy again. The Bible is promising for Christians a resurrection where there is a reunion of people. Additionally, I didn't know whether to say additionally or conversely. (laughs) Um, Additionally, there is a resurrection of the dead not to what we refer to as eternal life, but what we refer to as eternal death. That's got to be contemplated too if you're not a Christian. You can disagree with the Bible. You can say it's a bunch of myths, it's not true. Um, But you can't say the Bible does not say that every single person who's ever lived does not exist on the other side of life somewhere forever. Can't say the Bible doesn't say that. You can say I disagree with it, but the Bible teaches it clearly. And Paul in his life was all about the resurrection of the dead. So we have three things this morning. Uh, and it's 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 interesting. We have the trial itself. The trial unfolds, and then we have a different kind of trial. For our third point, first is a is a is a quick one to understand, but you got to get the context of and the setting. I tried to set it up a little bit before I read the, the text. The trial itself. This was a formal trial. This wasn't like a a church trial I heard of one time where the person followed our book of church order, and we have those kinds of things. There's a there's an allowance. He says we're going to have this church trial so we can get to the bottom of things. That's not the purpose of the trial. It wasn't to uncover any information and get to the bottom of things. They'd done the research. This was to present, and this man, Felix, made the call. He was the judge in this trial, the way the Romans had it set up. Uh, This was a a formal setting. Five days after Paul gets down there, he's got time to, oh, pray, think, get his bearings, people coming to see him, get all that stuff. Five days later, this group comes down, and they are the prosecutors, Tertullus uh, being the main prosecutor, but the others, it said, gave their voices. 
Tertullus is the prosecuting attorney. The man representing the Jewish religious leadership, trying Paul, who was also a Jew, in front of a judge who had been appointed by the Romans who was married to a Jew. There was a, a lot of Jewish culture and Jewish religion that was in the background here, and there was an understoodness of it. And they knew their stuff. So that's your prosecutor. Paul was defending himself. He's your defendant. The stakes were high. They were higher for Paul than anybody because he could be sentenced to death. He was at the mercy. Uh, if, if, if this Roman judge had sentenced him to death, there was no Roman garrison going to swoop in and save him like had happened in the temple when he was first arrested. This was it. Stakes were high for him. Now, we know later on in Scripture he would say these wonderful words that, that maybe some of us have said or, or will need to say, for me to live as Christ, to die is what? Gain. So uh, I always loved this. I, I don't know who it was. Uh, some preacher said this. It's like they're saying, Paul, we're going to kill you. He's like, good, I get to go be with Jesus. Then we're not going to kill you. Good, then I'm going to tell people about Jesus. Well, then we're going to kill you. Good, I get to be with Jesus. Then we're not going to kill you. Uh, Paul was a winner either way. But the stakes were high for, the, for, the, for Christianity and the spread of it. And, and uh, you know, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die, right? As that old bluegrass song says. And, and uh, there was some, some human anxiety, of course. Uh, the stakes for these people that wanted him put to death Freedom to him would mean more aggravation for them, more people saying, wait, this earthly power is not as big as we think. Oh, we're afraid of it. We're afraid of a surveillance state. We're afraid of this totalitarianism. We're afraid of cooperation among these powers that be. Uh, and and Paul, Paul's freedom meant more aggravation for them. Cutting into their power, cutting into their money, cutting into their influence, cutting into their self-esteem, maybe even cutting into their conscience a little bit as the gospel was spread. So that's the stakes. That's the trial. Now the trial unfolds. You see in the first six verses, uh, uh, two through six, the accusations by Tertullius. And first, I want you to just laugh a little bit at how people don't change. Laugh a little bit about how, oh, maybe we wear different clothes and maybe we have different technologies and different things, but people are the same. There is nothing new under the sun. And listen to this little suck-up, Tertullus, talking to the, the leader. Now, understand about this leader, Felix. Felix was known as a bad guy. He had crushed rebellions. He was a threat to the Jewish nation. He was not good. And listen to him as he gets ready to present his case. Listen to him just dripping with, uh, with lies. <laughs> he said, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In the background, he is choking on those words. He's holding his nose and saying those words. Since all of this stuff, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But you're so important, we don't even want to take much of your time. Just, I beg in your kindness, hear us briefly. Listen to that and think, 
That's what we all do. We suck up. If it's, if it's something we want to done, and, and they say flattery will get you nowhere, but in a fallen world, flattery usually gets you everywhere. And he's flattering first. And then he says three things about Paul as he's trying to get Felix to, to make a ruling against him. He said, first of all, in the first part of verse 5, this is a troublemaker. He stirs up riots among the Jews all over the world. Well, Rome wanted not riots. Rome wanted peace. Rome wanted nobody's boat to get rocked. They wanted to advance. And he says, everywhere he goes, all over the world, he gets these Jewish people and he stirs up riots. That's the first accusation. Second one, he says, he's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. This wouldn't have mattered so much to Felix, but anywhere there's just stirring up trouble, what do you do? Barney Fife always said it. Nip it in the bud. Got to nip it in the bud, man. Get it in the bud. He's a stirring up strife type of a person. And third, they said he even tried to desecrate the temple. Why is that important? It's important because the Romans, as long as the Jewish people were keeping peace and they didn't have to worry about them, they let them kind of make their own rules about the temple. And they could even, my understanding from, from reading some of these historians, is that they could even sentence somebody to death for desecrating the temple. The Jewish people could do it. Rome was saying, as long as you're not rocking our, our, our boat, we're not going to rock yours. Thinking all of a sudden of, of maybe even it's the way that we in our own lives deal with little sins. J.C. Ryle says, we make a truce sometimes with those little sins. You don't bother me so much, I won't bother you so much. You get to live in my life. Uh, we'll let you go. Just don't get too big and embarrass me or take over my life. Then I've got to battle you and replace you with a different kind of a sin. In the same way, politically, Rome had this thing going on until about A.D. 70 when they came and wiped them all out. So these are the three charges against Paul. Summary. They said, it's in both of our best interests to be rid of him. He's rocking both of our boats. Who knows where this will end? We really are offended. And this well-oiled machine that you Romans have God in the world as you take this place and take this place and take this place, it's going to be threatened by if you let these little pebbles, these little cogs in the machine. You've got to get rid of him. We want to get rid of him. It's in both of our interests. Off with his head. Those pesky Christians. That's what's being said here. Paul responds. And Paul did not, in his response, resort to the same kind of flattery. I'm proud of Paul. He didn't suck up to Tertullus. Look what he said. He said, um, uh, where is it? It's in uh, verse 10. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. He acknowledged that this one had been a judge, that this one had, has the authority. He was rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and he just made his defense. He didn't try to reverse suck up. Okay? His answer... First of all, he said, I'm not a troublemaker. I've only been in town these 12 days. He said, uh, you can verify it's not more than, verse 11, not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. Some commentators have said, by him saying, I've only been there 12 days, 
that he was trying to say, I haven't had time to get a, a revolution going. I read it the other way. I've been here for 12 days. Find the people that I've started to, to stir trouble up with. Whichever way it is, whichever way you understand the text, he's saying, look, you've got 12 days of history. Me and Jerusalem, you can't make a charge against me. He said then, and this is important for us to really understand and get. He said, I'm not deviating from the handed down Jewish religion. He said, I confess to you, verse 14, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. I'm not stirring up something against this religion. This is a continuation. Remember, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those what we call gospels, those, those stories, those, those biblical accounts, had not been written yet. What was Paul's scripture? He probably didn't even, yeah, he, Old Testament. What we call the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament back then. They just called it one thing. The Bible, God's word, the scriptures. That's what it was. And he says, I am not deviating at all from that. This is a continuation of that. Somebody wrote this in a book I'm rereading. He said, in Paul, we encounter a first century Jewish thinker who, while undergoing a profound disjuncture with his own religious tradition, grappled his way through to a vigorous and theologically generative, and in other words, something that's going to make them alive, reappropriation of Israel's scriptures. However great the tensions between his heritage and his new Christian convictions, he insistently sought to show that his proclamation of the gospel was grounded in the witness of Israel's sacred texts. The trick lay in learning to read these texts aright. In other words, he's saying, the scripture is the scripture. These guys are saying I'm something new. No, I am just saying what they're saying. Truth, God's word. And you can see all the way through Paul's writings, Paul was a gospel, scripture-based preacher. He didn't invent something. He carried it forward uh, all the way through. That was God's plan, God's people. Uh, when I read that in Psalms, about our, I, I use that Psalm 130 passage sometimes in our, uh, our declaration of absolution. And when it says, God shall set his Israel free, I usually say his church or his people. Uh, I do that deliberately because we need to understand God's people all the way through. And the, we are, the church is God's people. And Paul saw that. He would have seen Psalm 130 that same way. So he said, in answer to the second accusation, first accusation, he's stirring up trouble all over the world. He says, no, 12 days worth of, of, of documentation, you can't even get any witnesses. Second accusation, boy, he's got a new sect. He's trying to upend our religion. He's saying, no, no, this is the continuation of that religion. This is where it logically leads. I'll say this again to, to us to remind us. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. They say the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed, 
and the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. They go together. It's been a while since I've told this. I thought I was so smart going when I was a young Frito-Lay potato chip salesman, and I was maybe I was okay. I knew how to sell ruffles, and, and I knew the national pattern. I knew all that Tostitos and Doritos stuff. I knew who bought what and what parts of town where my route was. But I thought I was so theologically smart when we started going to Pinewoods Presbyterian Church because I had a, I'd been to a Bible college. And the pastor, Findlay, was leading this group, and I raised my hand. He said something about the Old Testament. And I said, I said, I know that most churches out there, they start with the New Testament. They start with the New Testament, and they start with the Old Testament. But we start with the New Testament, right? We're New Testament Christians. And he said, listen. He said, you start with the Old Testament, that's one thing. But we start with the New incorporating the old in. And so David and Goliath means more than just a good story. There's something about the old that we begin with the new and look at it, and we love the old and we bring it in. We don't just look at that as something past. Uh, These two, your Bible is your Bible. That's why what we try to do, and if we ever get through Acts, we'll go back to an Old Testament section. We do old and new. That's why if, if the sermon text is an Old Testament text, uh, whatever elder is, is, is helping lead the service that day will read a passage from the New Testament. This morning reading, because it's a New Testament text, we hear from the Old Testament. We want to remind ourselves always that the Bible is the Bible. All of it. So, he says, I'm just doing that. The third, uh, the third accusation was that he was desecrating their temple. And he gives a defense. He says, listen, in verse 27, when the seven days of purification were almost completed, he was just in there peacefully worshiping God. There was no tumult. Remember the story? No tumult until they came to arrest him. He was minding his own business. And he gave that defense. He said, "If there's only, the only thing that you could say that I did was during my trial. This is verse 21. During my trial, he said, the only thing you can pin on me is that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. So you have the prosecution, Tertullus, three charges. You have Paul giving his defense, three responses. And in his responses, there's some good theological stuff for us. And then you have the decision. And the decision wasn't off with his head, or wasn't he goes free. It's, this is adjourned. He says, I'm going to wait, and then the guy who did the arrest back there, this guy, Lysias, will come down. Uh, We don't even know what happened with that. These guys went home. For two years, he just stuck there in jail, and then it was handed over to the next guy. So the decision was adjournment. And that's why I want to talk about the different kind of trial, the waiting. It says in the last section of this, so while he's waiting, he says he can stay, his friends can come to him, everybody can uh, visit him. What did he say? Uh, they can, and none of his friends can be prevented from attending to his needs. And so he had a relative freedom, but he was still under guard and his case was still pending. So he was under the threat of death, but he could live. Um, it's good for us at this point to know a little bit more about Felix and about his wife, Drusella. It says, Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, 
put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I'll, I'll decide your case. Verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. What do we know about Drusilla from history? She was the daughter of the first Herod. Remember the first, the, not the first Herod, but the Herod in the Acts that put James to death, that locked up Peter. She was his little girl living there, watching all that happening. She was there in Jerusalem when, when this new uh, Christianity thing, this thing they called the way, was rising. Her brother we will meet later on. He was Herod Agrippa II, and he comes at the end of it. She was there watching. She was royalty. And she knew some things about Jews and Judaism and Christianity because that's what she sprang from. How did Paul redeem the time in his trial during those two years? Conversations, discipleship, maybe wrote some letters that uh, became part of Scripture, maybe wrote some letters that didn't become part of Scripture, but discipleship and instructing. He redeemed the time in these evil days. He visited with people, and he had a lot of conversations with Felix and Drusilla, husband and wife, came. What else do we know about Felix and Drusilla? Well, this was marriage number three for Felix. What they say about Drusilla in history, I get the words exactly right. They said, she was, had a reputation for being a, quote, ravishingly beautiful, a ravishing youthful beauty. Uh, whatever their standard of beauty was in those days, and we'd probably see her today, we go, ooh, ravishing. But, but it changes. Uh, what, what's handsome in one era is not handsome in another. It just, it all changes if you look at art and all that stuff. But she had a reputation then. Whatever they considered beautiful then, she was it. She was the it girl. She was the one. And she had that reputation. We know from history that Felix had seduced her from her rightful husband. She was married, but because he was the king and powerful, he could seduce her away. Had to have been a bit of a scandal. We know, we look at the, at the royals, we look at people that are up there, we look at our own American quote-unquote royalty, we see who's on the cover of these magazines when we're in the checkout line, and it seems like they can get away with more than us normal people can. And Felix and Drusilla could get away with it. But they weren't, they weren't it was a scandalous type of a life. And I wrote this as I was writing the sermon. I said, here's an instant application to make. Thank God you are not rich and powerful. Thank God you are not rich and powerful. Thank God that, that you can lean on God. What's that psalm that says, God, give me just enough. If I'm too poor, I'm going to be tempted to steal. If I have too much, I'm going to forget about you. Thank God for, for where you are. You consider yourself to be an a, 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 a average-looking person. Thank God for that. Think of, think of what beautiful people have to be tempted with all the time and deal with. So if you're average... That's a God's gift to you. That's a different kind of temptations, and we don't live in that, that world, a lot of us. Maybe any of us, I don't know. I don't have my glasses on, so I can't see. <laughs> I think you're all average. Without my glasses, I can't see your faces. What I'm saying is this. If you're just a regular person, boy, you've got a better shot than a lot of people. 
to have a relationship with God that matters. Think of these powerful people. Think of these wealthy people. Think of these glamorous people. And think of what they have to deal with all the time to either maintain it, the, the temptation there. And these guys had that. And there's a reason why for two years they were coming and talking to Paul. Now, one reason was, it says in the text, that he was kind of hoping Paul would give him a bribe to get out. So he was looking for money. That's one of the temptations of, of rich people and powerful people. They want more. So he was looking for a bribe. But he was listening and he was conversing. Paul spoke to them of three things. This is where, the, this is where we, we wrap up the sermon. We get to our application. He spoke to them, it says, of righteousness, of self-control, and of the judgment to come. That's in verse 25. He reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And as he did this, Felix was alarmed. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. He was stepping on Felix's toes. Now, people said, when he spoke about righteousness, he was talking, he was referring to all those bad things Felix had done. All the, the, the killings, the needless ones to keep him in power. And boy, when he was talking about self-control, he had to have been talking about how he uh, stole Drusilla from her husband and she was social climbing and he was climbing and and all that. And that's what he meant about self-control. And when he talked about judgment, he was saying, you're going to hell. Okay, maybe those are elements in there, but think about this. Maybe his speech about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come, maybe it went more like this. Maybe when he talked about righteousness is what I hope to talk about with righteousness. How can you be right with God? That kind of righteousness. Maybe not, uh, we all know we're sinners. We all know we're unrighteous in our own flesh. Maybe the righteousness that Paul spoke of here is the righteousness throughout Scripture. The righteousness that is in Christ alone. And maybe when he talked about self-control, it wasn't so much, you did this, you did this, you did this. We all know when we've lost our self-control. Maybe he was saying something like this. How can you truly overcome temptation and gain self-mastery? Not being perfectly self-controlling, but every one of us, every one of us who's a Christian can say that our self-control is better when we're walking with Christ, and and there is a way. Uh, I would talk to every person that's coming to AA, and and, uh, boy, I love them. And some are Christians, and they're brothers and sisters in Christ, Some at least are acknowledging a higher power and all that, and they're looking for some self-control, and they find that by saying there's something outside of me, a righteousness and a self-control. And none of us are are, are perfectly self-controlling. We're all sinners, and we continue to. That's the strength of sin in our lives uh, that's going to be gone in heaven. But boy, there is something. And and when Paul was talking about self-control, maybe he was saying, here's how you can straighten your life out. Here's how you don't have to give in to these impulses. Maybe he's saying, here's an eternal perspective where we see each person as having a soul that will last forever, and that helps in our treatment of them today. Drusilla would like to hear that. What if she lost her, quote, ravishing youthful beauty, and, uh, and Felix decided in his power to go to number four? Drusilla's life would be better if Felix had given his life to Christ. Drusilla's Security is there then. Repentance. 
taking on Christ's righteousness could change their entire relationship with each other. They could encourage each other in the context of a Christian marriage. And it could be a beautiful thing. And I've got a hunch that when Paul talked about those three things, righteousness, self-control, and the resurrection, he was talking to that because he did what we all should want to do, to see people come into a right relationship with Christ and, and be citizens of heaven and not citizens of earth anymore. When he talked about judgment, it could have very well been a warning to them of the terrible judgment that awaited them, but he could talk about how the judgment went on Christ instead of them and the wrath of God was there. And boy, you can escape the judgment of hell because Jesus bore that for you. And I think Paul wasn't just talking to accuse them and accuse the culture. He was talking to say Jesus can redeem the culture. That's what I think. Application, conclusion. Felix listened to Paul for two years. Could have set him free. Wanted his bribe, wanted the favor of the Jews, etc., etc. But, but uh, the, the promise had already been given to Paul. He was going to go to Rome and, and, and share the gospel. For us today, how about this paragraph? One, one quick one before we, we, we wrap into these little points for us today. What if Felix and Drusilla, whose bodies are most likely completely dissolved into dust today, but who did experience bodily resurrection and are either enjoying eternal life or are in agony as they experience eternal death. I hope, there's no record of this in history, I hope we get to heaven and and there's Felix and there's Drusilla, don't you? We want them to have made that right choice and these words from Paul to have come back to them. We want everybody, uh, wicked as they are, self-centered as they are, or just ornery as they are, we want everybody to make that right choice. We want the best for people. We hope for that. We don't know about them. If they're experiencing eternal death, you bet one of the things that they're playing to themselves are the messages Paul gave them, though. Think about that. For us, quick points. One, you're just as liable to be falsely accused by Paul, even if the court hearing in this case is just with your family around the Thanksgiving table. You live for Christ, there's a little bit of accusations uh, uh, from, from, from folks who don't. It's okay to stick up for yourself, as Paul did. Know your God, know your place in God's family, know your place in God's kingdom, know your scriptures, and know that there's something on the other side of this earthly life. And you live in that, you can handle whatever accusations. You can do it with grace, as Paul did. Three, you can do this because there's something bigger than you and your own life going on. Four, the accusers and the judge have the same thing going on as you, an appointment with God after their soul's resurrection. And finally, I would just say, those are the words for the Christians. Just perspective, perspective, perspective. You're going to die. There's something happening after your death. All these people are going to die. There's something happening after, your, after their death. Love them. Pray for them. Agonize for them if they don't know the Lord. Treat them as your brother and sister in Christ if they do. And then I would just say this. If you are an unbeliever, think about these things and do what the Bible has been telling people like you to do for thousands of years. Here is Jesus' words, and this is the end of the sermon before we go to the table. Jesus came. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life, 
at a certain point, he started his ministry. He was baptized. He was tempted. He came back. And this is in Mark. Jesus' first recorded words in Mark. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And that's the message for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul and this trial. Thank you for Acts chapter 24. And thank you for helping us to see some things in it that we need to see. Keep working in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.